Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. And Amy, I just wanted to share a little interesting tidbit with you and our listeners as we get started today. I don't know, maybe this is just a statistics nerd thing for me, but just like there are charts for music to show you, you know, who has the number one song, there are charts like that for podcasts to show you the rankings of the top 250 podcasts in countries all around the world. And I just enjoy looking at those. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, podcast charts are, are broken down by category and subcategory. So, for example, there would be a category for cars that ranks all podcasts about any kind of car. And then there would be a subcategory for Chevys that ranks all podcasts specifically about Chevys. So it's that way for religious podcasts, too. The general category is religion and spirituality. And then there's a subcategory for Christianity. So I just check out those charts from time to time just to see where a word fitly spoken is on the charts. And we are blessed to be heard all around the world. And we usually make the charts every week in one or both of those categories in about two to four various countries. So mm-hmm. as I, I was writing the um, the script for this episode a couple of weeks ago, and I just popped over and, and checked our charts, and I just thought it would be interesting to share with you and our readers that in early October, we made the Christianity subcategory charts in Canada and Spain and oh. the religion and spirituality chart in Ireland. Um, and I don't know the exact rankings, but we were in the top 250. And then in South Korea, we came in at 79 on the Christianity chart and 115 on the religion and spirituality chart. Oh, that's really interesting, Michelle. Um, you know, the only statistics I see are the ones that we have on our hosting platform, which is called uh, Podbean. It is one of the places that you can listen to us. So we host our podcast there. So the statistics that I just saw tonight, um, we have had since we started this thing, 430,000 downloads uh, wow. since 2019 is when we started. And uh, so of all the top episodes and topics we've ever covered, Michelle, guess, guess which episode is far and away the number one listener favorite? Oh, I, I you'll have to tell me. <laughs> well, it's one we did in May 19th of this year, and the title of it was uh, Pro-Life or Abolitionist with Brett Baguette. And oh, uh, remember that one? Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to tell him about that. He'll be so excited. We had more than 6,800 downloaded uh, that one. So people are really listening to that one. We'll have to link that one up in the script tonight. But I just thought that was interesting. And I can see a map, too, of all the places where people listen to us. Uh, So a special shout out to all our listeners in Canada, Spain, Ireland, South Korea, Cuba, Madagascar, Russia, Indonesia, Mm -hmm. Iran, many, many more, lots of nations. So thanks for listening and uh, for sharing a word fitly spoken with your friends. And of course, thank you to all our listeners, matter where you live. And you know what else, Michelle? We just got our first Patreon donation in pounds rather than in U.S. dollars from a listener named Hannah. And uh, several countries use pounds as their monetary unit. So we're not sure where Hannah is from. Uh, We just know that it's somewhere outside the U.S. So thank you, Hannah, wherever you are. We really appreciate that. And uh, we do want to say a big thank you to Sandy, who also is a new uh, patron over on Patreon. Yes, thank you both so much. And thank you to all of our donors who give every month through Patreon. We really appreciate you. Yeah. 
Well, Michelle, isn't it a joy to know that even though these members of our Christian family are so far away and we might never get to meet them here on earth, that one day all of us who know Christ will get to meet and fellowship together around the throne for eternity when we all get to heaven. Isn't that great? Yes. What a blessing that will be. I actually think about that a lot, you know, with our friends on Twitter and our listeners and all, you know, all of our friends so far away that we haven't gotten a chance to meet. We've, we've got a big, worldwide family, and one day we're going to have the greatest family reunion ever. Yes, one day we will. But in the meantime, we get to enjoy a small family reunion every week with our brothers and sisters in our local church families. And I know I really look forward to meeting with these dear ones every week and and even throughout the week. Uh, The local church is one of the greatest blessings that God has given us as Christians. We get to fellowship with our church family, teach and disciple one another, pray for each other, help each other out, and sharpen each other. And of course, eating each other's food. It's great. So (laughs) I I don't know, one track mind, I guess. So tonight, we're going to talk about some special ways that we can do that as women in our local churches. And Michelle and I have both received questions over the years, and some of them very recently about the various biblical and practical aspects of women's ministry. So this is going to be part one of a two-part mini-series on women's ministry. So tonight we're going to talk about how to make sure your women's ministry is biblical, and then next week we're going to talk more about the practical aspects of women's ministry, as in the how-tos, so you don't want to miss that one. That's right. And maybe we should also clarify as we're going into this that we're going to be talking about organized women's ministry in the church. We're not going to be talking about every possible form of ministry from one woman to another that ever comes up. You know, we're not talking about things like you spontaneously inviting a friend to coffee to help her with a problem or you taking a meal to your neighbor who just had a baby, though things like that are certainly good ways of women ministering to each other. What we're talking about is a specific type of women's ministry, an official approved program or organization of the church itself, a a ministry that has some sort of recognized designated leadership that intentionally plans church-sanctioned activities and classes and events and things like that for the purpose of building up and discipling the women of your church. Yeah, and before we get into logistics and practicalities, we always want to start with the Bible, God's Word. And there are two reasons for that. And first, uh, you know, that's just what we're supposed to do as Christians when we do anything from getting married to buying groceries, from becoming a missionary to tying our shoes. Well, we pray, of course, and then we want to know what the Bible says about that activity. We want the Bible to be the authority over that activity, and we want to obey the Bible's authority over that activity activity. As Christians, every aspect of our lives, no matter how big or how small, should be subject to the authority of God and His Word. And the second reason we want to start with the Bible is because that first reason is the most important lesson we can teach the women in our women's ministry to submit everything in our lives to the authority of God and His Word. So when we start with the Bible, we are teaching that lesson to our ladies, at least by example. So let's go to the Bible and just ask a few questions. First, does the Bible command churches to have an organized women's ministry? Okay. Does the Bible prohibit churches from having an organized women's ministry? 
Does the Bible allow churches that want to have an organized women's ministry to have one? And what should a biblical women's ministry look like? Well, Amy, the Bible neither commands nor prohibits having an organized women's ministry like we see in many churches. There isn't a verse that says, church, thou shalt or thou shalt not have a women's ministry. However, if we look at the organizational structure of the church itself and the ministries of the church in the New Testament, I think the Bible at the very least allows for, if not encourages, organized women's ministry. Look at how the church itself is structured in the New Testament. It's a specific group of people, Christians, who are set apart in a group by the initiation of baptism for a specific reason, to grow in Christ. There are designated leaders, pastors and elders who must meet certain requirements. There are prescribed activities, preaching, worship, prayer, the Lord's Supper. You know, think about that structure, the structure of the church, and sort of mentally compare it to the structure and goals of an organized women's ministry. Yeah, that's right. And we can also see how a women's ministry might be allowed or encouraged by the Bible when we look at a couple of ministries within the early church. And interestingly, these were both ministries to women. So let's start in Acts chapter 6, where we read about the first deacons being set apart for service. Acts 6 verses 1 through 4 tells us this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should be giving up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of God of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, and whom we will all appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So a ministry need arose in this church. The disciples, who today would be our pastors and elders, recognized and set aside a specific group of people to meet that specific ministry need. Right. And later on in 1 Timothy 5, we see a similar ministry to widows in another New Testament church in Ephesus. While the Acts 6 passage focuses on the leadership of the ministry to widows, the 1 Timothy 5 passage focuses on those being ministered to. Now, this passage, the 1 Timothy 5 passage, is a little bit longer, so we would encourage you to hit pause, go grab your Bible, and give it a read. It's going to be 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. And you'll notice that when you read it, that this passage talks about who is qualified to receive help from this ministry and who is not. Verses 3 through 8 and verse 16 specify that she must be a true widow left all alone with no family to help her. And if she has family, they are to take care of her to ease the financial burden of the church. And then you have verses 9 through 10 that require that this uh, that widows that are being helped by the church be 60 or older with a track record of godly character and behavior. And then verses 11 through 15 deny participation to widows younger than 60 and admonishes them to marriage and godly character. So in these two passages, you've got two church sanctioned ministries to a specific group of people in the church. 
widows. You've got recognized leaders who have to meet certain requirements to lead, and you've got well-defined parameters of who the ministry ministers to and for what reason. And like Amy said, interestingly, these are both ministries to women. So we can see that while scripture neither commands nor prohibits organized women's ministry in the church, it certainly allows, supports, and encourages meeting women's needs via an organized ministry in the church. So what about that last question we're asking the Bible tonight, Amy? What should a biblical women's ministry look like? Well, Michelle, thankfully, the Bible gives us the answer to that, too. One of the major themes of the epistle of Titus is the order and structure of the church. So it's not surprising that the Bible not only supports meeting the needs of women through organized ministry, but that we find out that what those needs are and how to meet them in the book of Titus. Titus 2 talks about the character, the roles and responsibilities of pastors and church members, including older and younger men, older and younger women, and bond servants. So verses 3 through 5 talk about the women of the church. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This really is our outline for what a biblical women's ministry should look like, starting with godly older women teaching and training younger women. Absolutely. You know, Amy, the world and sometimes even the church are always pushing youth, 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 that the way you appeal to women to get them to buy what you're selling or to get excited about what you're offering is to have young, vibrant women who fit the world's definition of pretty to be the face of your product or your organization or even your women's conference or your church's women's ministry. But that's the world's way, not God's way. God's way is for mature, godly women to train up younger women. And I thank God that more and more, it seems, God is stirring up and reawakening that desire in younger women to seek out that teaching and training from us older women. Yeah, I do too, Michelle. But remember, older women, we've got to be there when those younger women come knocking on our door. Because one of the things Michelle and I often hear from younger women is, there are no spiritually mature older women in my church that I can turn to. Well, we older ladies need to realize that's our responsibility, and we need to do something about it. Married, single, divorced, or widowed, children or no children, whatever station of life God has called us to as we get older, and we mature in walking with the Lord on that particular path, we are able to help those younger women by sharing what God has taught us through his word and through the life experiences that he has brought our way. So we do hope that some of you ladies in your 50s and up are listening, and will start thinking and praying and talking to your pastors about how you might reach out to uh, the younger women in your church. That's right. You might be of retirement age, but we never retire from serving the Lord and the church. You heard it right there in Titus 2. As older women, it is our biblical responsibility to train these young younger women. And we really need to take that seriously and get on it. Don't wait for someone to ask you. You take the initiative. 
And I'm going to get kind of personal here, too, and, and hammer on this a bit. So if this steps okay. on your toes, maybe your toes need to be stepped on a little in this area. I'm sure all of our toes could stand to be stepped on a little. But, um, you know, I've seen this dynamic in a number of churches that my husband and I have served. I see older women who will ride a couple of hours in the church van to go to a senior adult lunch at a restaurant, or they'll take a trip to Branson with their Sunday school class, or they'll go from Louisiana to New England with their garden club on a leaf peeping excursion, you know, things like that. But you ask them to come to an occasional women's event at the church because you love them and you want them there and the younger women need their wisdom and experience. And all of a sudden, they don't like to go out at night or their health problems start acting up. Now, I'm not denying that as we age, it can become more difficult and more tiring to serve. I get it. That kind of thing is already starting to catch up with me, even at my age. But here's what I'm saying. Before you say no to helping and training the younger women in your church, get alone with the Lord and pray earnestly about it and be really honest with yourself and with Him. Are you really in too much pain to do this, or is that a convenient excuse? Is going out at night truly that problematic if someone volunteers to drop by and pick you up, or do you just not want to? How is that younger woman at your church going to feel the next time she sees you doing some fun activity with the senior adults, but saying no to helping her? What kind of example are you setting for her? You don't answer to me about those things, but you do answer to God about them. So stretch yourself. Try. Make the effort for those younger ladies. Yeah. And, you know, younger ladies, please pray for those older ladies. Pray that God would send those godly older women to you and that he would give them a zeal to train you and help you. Pray that he will give them the wisdom they need, as well as the physical strength and endurance to be there for you and reach out to them, offer to help and serve them as well. So if you want to have a biblical women's ministry in your church, the first thing you've got to do is forget about the premium the world places on youth and adopt a biblical view of discipleship that values age and spiritual maturity and life experience and structure your women's ministry so that your godly older women are teaching and training your younger women. That's right, Amy. And like you said, we're not just talking about any older woman. We're talking about godly older women. Not just any older woman is qualified to train younger women. Our focal passage, Titus 2, 3 through 5, gives us an explicit list of character qualifications and an implicit list of skill qualifications for older women who are qualified to train younger women. Let's take a look at those explicit character qualifications first in the first part of verse 3. It says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So that's three qualifications of character, reverent, not slanderers, and not slaves to much wine. Sounds easy, right? Well, let's look at each of those, and we're going to start at the end of that list and go backwards. Okay, well, that last character qualification in that list is slaves to much wine. So if your life centers around alcohol, or if you're a drunkard, or if you can't do without alcohol, 
you're really not qualified to train younger women. I know that's hard to hear, but you're not. So for most Christians, drunkenness and alcohol addiction itself is not usually much of an issue, but that doesn't let us off the hook because what is the principle behind that qualification? Well, it's all about control. So if you're a slave to wine or a slave to anything else, you're letting a fleshly desire control you. And as Christians, our flesh is not supposed to be in control. Second Peter 2.19 says, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And if you're a slave to much wine, that means you're getting drunk and uh, you're not in control of yourself while you are under the influence. Our lives are supposed to be controlled by Christ and Christ alone, and we are to exercise self-control over our behavior, habits, temptations, and so on. So maybe you're not controlled by wine, and that is great, but is there anything controlling you besides Christ? That's something we should all prayerfully work through, regardless of whether or not we're teaching younger women. Okay, as we continue going backwards through that list of explicit character qualities, next is not slanderers. The definition of slander is getting really muddled these days, especially on social media. Some people seem to think that anytime somebody says or writes something that rubs them the wrong way, even if it's biblical truth, that's slander. Well, that's not slander. Words mean things, okay? Slander in the biblical sense, and really even in the common vernacular, is closely related to gossip and backbiting. To slander someone is to make a false statement that damages someone else's reputation. If you speak the truth and damage someone's reputation, you might be sinning or you might not be, but you're not committing the particular sin of slander. Also, handling situations in a biblical, truthful way that has an undesirable impact on someone is not slander. For example, if you know for a fact that your women's ministry director at your church is committing adultery and you confront her about it and she lies about it and denies it, you are not slandering her if you go to your pastor and tell him what's going on. That's not slander. That's good and proper Matthew 18 church discipline. So to be qualified to teach younger women, you're not to be a slanderer. But again, think about the principles underlying that command. For every don't in scripture, there's usually an implied do. You're not just to refrain from lying about others. You're to strive to be a person of truth and integrity. You're to be a kind and compassionate person who hates to hurt other people unnecessarily. Amen. And uh, Michelle, finally, the first explicit character quality in verse three is reverent in behavior. And what does that mean? Do we always have to be serious and solemn and never crack a smile or do anything fun or enjoy life? Thankfully for me, no. (laughs) So here's what the word reverence means in the Greek. Reverence means to comport yourself in a way that is befitting men, places, actions, or things sacred to God. We are to represent Christ well through our attitudes, our actions, and words, wherever we go and whatever we do. That's reverence. None of us are going to be perfect at that. Of course, God isn't finished working on any of us yet, but that is the direction we're supposed to be growing toward, increasing in holiness, increasing in Christ-likeness, increasing in reverence. 
Right. Reverence in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much one. That's a great abbreviated list of godly character traits. I also want to encourage our listeners to go back to a somewhat lengthy passage we mentioned earlier, 1 Timothy 5. It goes into even greater detail than Titus 2-3 about godly char- the godly character traits of older women, as well as some ungodly character traits that we should avoid. Amy, can you give us a little background as we sort of parachute into 1 Timothy 5? You bet. When we look at any passage, we always want to make sure we're considering it in its proper context. So let me just briefly set the stage. First Timothy was a letter from Paul to Pastor Timothy about how to run the church. In the first century, women, for the most part, depended on men throughout their lives to support them financially, first their fathers, then their husbands, and then their grown sons. But of course, there were women who became widowed and for various reasons had no family to support them. And there was no social security or welfare back then, of course. So if you didn't really have anyone to take care of you and you couldn't work, well, you were out in the street. And in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is saying, we are not going to let that happen to our older sisters in Christ. We, the church, are going to take care of them, but we've got to go about this systematically. And that's really what this passage is. Some widows qualified for financial support from the church, and some did not. And many of those qualifications were character qualities. So what we're talking about from this passage right now is not how to structure a system for caring for widows, but the various character traits of these godly older women that were valued by God and the church. Yeah, let's take a look at those godly character traits uh, that we want to emulate and those undesirable character traits to avoid in 1 Timothy 5, starting in verse 5. And you might want to get out your Bible and follow along. This is 1 Timothy 5, and we're going to start in verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. You see the contrast there in verses 5 and 6. The godly woman is walking in reverence. She puts all her focus on Christ. Her life revolves around Christ, while the ungodly woman's life revolves around herself and her desires. Verse 9, here's here's the godly woman again. It says, having been the wife of one husband. So this godly woman is to have been a one-man woman faithful to her husband. Verse 10, and having a reputation for good works. Here's what she's to be known for. If she has brought up children, so if she had children, she should be known for being a godly mother. If she has shown hospitality, she's to be welcoming and kind. If she has washed the feet of the saints, in other words, she has served the church faithfully and she has taken care of the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. If she has cared for the afflicted, you know, she has visited and taken care of the sick and has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but, okay, now we're going to pivot to some ungodly character traits, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ. In other words, they turn away from their passion for Christ and they start following their hunger for worldly things. 
um, when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. They're drawn away from Christ to pursue what the world has to offer. So for these ungodly women, their life does not revolve around Christ. It revolves around self. They pine for earthly things. And verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And we have an electronic version of this today. It's called social media. And a lot of women go from house to house or page to page, idling, gossiping and being busybodies. Also remember how I told you uh, in Titus a few minutes ago that slander is related to gossip. So here's that idea again. So I I would have uh, verse 14. He says, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So idlers, gossips, and busybodies versus marry, bear children, and manage your household. In other words, do something constructive. Build the kingdom. Raise this next generation that's going to be the church. Manage your household, just like we see in Titus, working at home. Be busy about the things of God, and you won't have time to be a busybody. You know, that is such a great passage and a wonderful ideal for all Christian women to aspire to. And ladies, you can't see this. Um, so Michelle has pasted in uh, the, our, you know, um, Bible verses for our discussion notes. She highlighted the godly characteristics in one color and the ungodly characteristics in another color. It's so cool. And it really helps show the contrast between the two. Uh, so listeners, ladies, um, maybe you'd like to go to this passage and just highlight in, in that way, in your own Bibles when you study it later. Uh, but for now, I just want to go back and restate those godly and ungodly character qualities to firmly plant them in our minds. I know I need that. Uh, the godly character qualities that we should aspire to as we grow into godly, mature, older women are, and there's a list of them here. I'm going to read them here. Set your hope on God. Continue in supplications and prayers. Be a faithful wife if you're married. Have a reputation for good works. If you have children, be known for being a godly mother. Manage your household. Show hospitality. Wash the feet of the saints. In other words, serve the church faithfully. Care for the afflicted. And devote yourself to every good work. What a wonderful list. Now, here's another list. These aren't so uh, nice, and they are the ungodly character traits that we all want to avoid. You ready? Self-indulgence. Allowing your passions, your flesh, and your feelings to draw you away from Christ. Abandoning your former faith. Being an idler, going about from house to house being gossips, and busybodies. Yeah, we want to avoid all those things. Now, all of these, as well as the three we looked at in Titus 2, reverent in behavior, not slanders, or slaves to much wine, are explicit character qualities of the older woman. But as Michelle mentioned earlier, there are also implicit skill qualifications that uh, older women must have in order to be qualified to train younger women. 
Right, Amy. And here's what I mean by that. Titus 2, 3 through 5 not only tells us about the godly character older women should have, it also tells us to do some things. And we can infer from the things that it tells us to do, to do that we should know how to do those things. We should be qualified in those skills. So let's take a look. Teach what is good. That's the first thing we see there. Now, we're going to discuss what what is good means in greater detail in just a moment. But as we're talking about skill qualifications, the point is that in order to train younger women in what is good, you have to already know what is good. And basically, that's the Bible. You need to know your Bible. That is right. And we don't mean you need to know your Bible like you know your dentist that you, you know, see only twice a year. You need to know your Bible like you know your best friend. You know your best friend like the back of your hand. You know what she's thinking, what she likes and doesn't like, and how she's going to respond in any given situation. That's how well you need to know your Bible. If you don't know it that well yet, that's okay. Pick it up, get to work studying it, and ask God to help you catch up. There is grace for that. And why is it so important to training younger women that you know your Bible? Well, because those two little words at the beginning of verse 4, and so, teach what is good, and so, train them. Right. In other words, all of those things after and so, you know, love their husbands and children and so on. All of those things flow from knowing your Bible and what it says about all that stuff and putting it into practice yourself. And then you have that wisdom stored away in your brain so that when you start training this younger woman about loving her husband, you can look at what she's doing and go, "Hun, buying your husband a romantic greeting card is, is really nice. But what he really needs you to do is the laundry so he'll have a clean shirt to wear to work. I mean, I know it's your least favorite chore, but making that sacrifice to serve him, that's loving your husband. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing when it comes to training these younger women to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure and kind, working at home and being submissive to their husbands. You have to have those skills yourself before you can teach it to them. You learn what the Bible says about these things. You apply and work out those scriptures in these various areas of your life. So you gain some skill and experience, and then you're able to import that wisdom to that younger woman as you lead her back into scripture so she can learn them and apply them to her life. So just a quick mini review. If we want to have a biblical women's ministry at church, we need to start with the Bible's model of older women teaching the younger women instead of the world's obsession with youth, and those older women have to meet certain godly qualifications and skill qualifications in order to be qualified to teach younger women. And the next thing we need to consider as we pursue a biblical women's ministry is what the teaching of our women's ministry should revolve around. So let's go back to Titus 2, uh, verses 3 through 5. Older women are to teach what is good, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So our passage starts off by saying that older women are to teach what is good. That is what the teaching in a biblical women's ministry should revolve around. So what is good? Now let's take a look at scripture and see what scripture says is good. 
Well, Amy, scripture tells us that God is good. Mark ten eighteen says, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then there's Psalm 107, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So God himself is good. Goodness is his nature and character. So when we teach what is good, we teach the nature and character of God. God is good. The Bible also teaches us that God does good. Genesis 1, the creation account, the very first place in the Bible where the word good is used. So you remember the six days of creation. God creates light and darkness, land and sea, plants and animals. And every time he gets done, he steps back and the Bible says that he he saw that it was good. So all of God's acts are good. God does good. And I love the way that Psalm 119.68 sums up those first two points for us just so nicely. It says, God, you are good and you do good. Yeah, that's right. And the Bible also teaches us that the gospel is good. It's right there in the word gospel, good news. The gospel is the good news of salvation. Luke four forty three. Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And Romans ten fifteen says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the gospel is good. And if we're to teach what is good, we're to teach the good news of the gospel of salvation. And finally, God's commands are good. In Nehemiah 9.13, Nehemiah is speaking about the Lord and he says, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And Romans 7.12 says this, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's instructions to us, ladies, the things he tells us to do and not to do are good. God's commands are good. That's right. So just to sum it up, if we're teaching what is good, we're teaching the nature and character of God. God is good. The acts of God. God does good. We're teaching the gospel, the good news, and we're teaching disciples to obey God's good commands. And where do we learn about all of those things? Well, the Bible, of course. Think about it. Is there anything in the Bible that doesn't fall under one of those four categories? God is good. God does good. The good news of the gospel or God's good commands. No. So if we're to teach what is good, what are we to teach? Well, we're to teach the Bible. Yeah, that's really what it boils down to, isn't it, Michelle? Our entire lives, including things like loving our husbands and children, being self-controlled, pure, kind, and so on, are to be guided by the Bible. So naturally, that's what a biblical women's ministry should revolve around, teaching the Bible and how to apply it to our lives as godly women. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed part one of our mini-series on women's ministry. And be sure to come back next week for part two when we're going to take a look at all the practical sides of doing women's ministry. That's going to be great. A lot of fun. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to A Word Fitly Spoken on your favorite podcast platform. And if you love A Word Fitly Spoken, be sure to leave us a five-star review and an encouraging comment wherever you listen to help us get biblical truth into the earbuds of women all over the world. And until next time, make sure the women's ministry at your church is biblical and walk worthy.